Uh, I'd like to start by asking you a question. Imagine that we all had to be evacuated uh, and leave the seacoast, uh, you know, maybe some uh, radioactive contamination or something like that, and we all had to move out and move to a new city and we had to find a new church. What would you be looking for in a church? Uh, what would be important to you? See, I suspect that many of us would be looking for uh, great worship, uh, great preaching. You know, we want good content, right? We want to be able to feed our souls. Um, but surely you can just go to iTunes for that, right? I mean, why, why bother with church? You can go to YouTube and you can find the best worship music and the best preaching, right? better than uh, any local church. So uh, why bother with church? Why bother with church? But then is that what church is about? Jesus once uh, made an astonishing statement to a group of kind of ragtag, ordinary, uh, well, a bit like us here today, uh, his fledgling church. And he addressed the crowd and said, you are the light of the world. You can imagine the people looking around, you know, wondering who he's talking to. It's not you. You all are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, cities uh, on a hill are very visible, especially at nighttime. You see light shining uh, in the night, lighting up the, the sky. And so Jesus is saying, you know, as a community, as a church, we're to be visible like that. That's why he then says, uh, again, Matthew 5, and verse 16 and 17, he goes on to say, Let your light then shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, light, as we know, exposes things, doesn't it? It causes darkness to go. But light is also attractive. You know, we're attracted to the lights, much like moths are to a lamp. Um, and that's the idea that, that Jesus is kind of uh, conveying here. Um, because what does he say that light looks like? What does he compare it with in this passage? Good works, right? He's comparing light with our good works. He's saying here that our light shines through the good works that we do. In fact, the word for good here that Jesus used, that we translate as good in our Bibles, right? That original word actually means beautiful or attractive. They're to be beautiful works, attractive works, um, there should be something about our community and the works that we do that is beautiful and attractive to those who are in darkness. Because after all, people were uh, attracted to Jesus, weren't they? He said, I am the light of the world, and people flocked to him, mostly because of the way that he treated them, you know, the way he befriended, you know, despised tax collectors and prostitutes and, and kind of sinners, right? Those who are on the margins of society, those who were hurting and sick. You know, he had compassion for them. He gave them dignity. 
He healed their sicknesses. He set people free. And in the same way, he's saying that people will be attracted to the light of the church because of the good works that we do. And it's going to result in them giving glory to God because they'll come to see, actually, it's not us. You know, it's not our light, is it? It comes from him. It's Jesus in our midst that causes us to shine and attracts people to him. So they'll join us in praising him. Now, this idea about the church being attractive kind of came home to me a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were serving uh, dinners, uh, the community dinner that we do over at Gosling Meadows. We've been doing this every Thursday night for about the last five years. Uh, if you don't know Gosling Meadows, it's the public housing uh, just down the road here. And um, we were serving dinner, and there was a boy there. Now, I'd not seen him for several months. He used to come regularly to our dinners and to our uh, kids' club that we run on the Saturday morning there. And uh, he's a bit of a tearaway. I mean, we, you know, we often had to talk to him. And, but he's a lovable rogue, all right? And, but when he started at school, they found him sitting under, under a table with a blanket. And it kind of raised some red flags. And so they called the authorities in. And after some investigation, uh, they found that what they said, this was one of the worst cases of child abuse they'd come across. And so he was taken into care. Well, a couple of weeks ago, he was back at the Meadows on a, a supervised visit. And I didn't recognize him at first. I saw this boy running down the street towards me. I was outside. We were just grilling, serving the, the dinner. And I saw him running down this street. Um, and it's only when he got close, I recognized who it was. By that time, he'd already taken off the ground as he came and gave me a flying hug. And it took me by surprise because he'd not really uh, shown any affection uh, like that before, at least not uh, to me. It made me realize that the work that we have been doing there, actually, you know, the relationships we're building, it means something. And uh, for some reason, this boy was drawn to me like a magnet. Um, and of course, it's not me. It's, it's the church, the whole community of our church who serve there um, and who have created that attraction. I just happen to be the first one that he saw. And of course, we know it's not us. Ultimately, it's Jesus. It's Christ in us. That's the reason why we're there in the first place. Um, but for me, see, it was just an encouraging picture of what was going on there in the spiritual realm. And I could imagine many being drawn and ending up worshiping God with us. Uh, but that's what Jesus intended for his church to be like. You know, in a, in, a, in a world where there's so much brokenness and so much injustice, where you know, children are abused and disposed of, uh, where people are trafficked and treated as slaves, uh, where so many are, are ravaged by divorce or drugs um, or dehumanized because of poverty or their ethnicity uh, or their disability, they're into that darkness that the church should be visibly acting in a way that is like a shining light. Because surely that's what the church is about. It's what actually God originally intended for his people, Israel. As we've been seeing in our book of Nehemiah, the series we're doing, so Nehemiah heard that Jerusalem, which was the original city on the hill, 
that it was still in ruins and the people were living in shame. And he was devastated because the prophet Isaiah had had said that God intended for Israel to be a light to the world, a light to the nations. Isaiah 49 verse 6. He said that, that the nations would be attracted to them, to their way of life under God. Uh, that other nations would come to worship the God of Israel because of the beauty of their society. I don't know if you know this, but historians um, often point to ancient Israel as the first society to introduce a comprehensive welfare system that cared for the poor and the marginalized within their community. And so in Isaiah 60, God says to Israel, listen, nations are going to come to your light. They're going to be attracted to you. He says, your walls will be called salvation and your gates praise. So when Nehemiah heard that the walls were rubble and the gates were burned, he wept. What had happened? What had happened to this once glorious city on a hill? Well, the prophet Jeremiah gave a very vivid illustration of what had happened. God one day told Jeremiah to go and buy a linen waistband and to wear it as a garment. Now, I don't know what it would have looked like, uh, but it would have been, it was bright, white, pure linen, and uh, I'm not sure how they would have worn it. Uh, some translations say a belt. Well, it's not a belt like we wear, because others say a loincloth. But it was a waistband. It was to be worn as a garment around his waist. And it would have been very attractive. Trust me. All right? It would have, it would have been. And so people would have admired him as he walked around Jerusalem in his beautiful uh, waistband or sash or whatever it was. And then one day, God says to Jeremiah, I want you to take that garment and I want you to bury it in a hole by the river. And so probably reluctantly, he probably enjoyed wearing this, he went and found the river and he went and buried it there in a hole by the river. And he came back and several months later, God says to Jeremiah, now I want you to go back to that river, I want you to dig it up. So he goes back to the river and he digs it up and oh no, it's now this Filthy, soiled, rotten garment. This, what used to be bright, white, fresh linen, beautiful, attractive, now disgusting, filthy, useless, couldn't be worn. What, well, what was God saying? Well, God made it very clear what he was saying. He says this, Jeremiah 13, verse 10. Talking about Israel, it says, This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words and who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts and have gone after other gods to serve them and bow down to them, let them be just like this waistband which is totally worthless. For as a waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for my renown and praise and glory. But they did not listen. You see, God's people had once clung to him like a garment, 
Right? They had a close relationship with him. That, that's what God is saying. He, he, it's like he wore his people like a garment to put them on display uh, before the other nations that would be attracted to him, you see? It's a bit like you ladies. If you wore a beautiful ball gown and you step out onto the red carpet and, and everyone goes, wow, how beautiful you look, how attractive you are, and they are drawn to you. Well, that's what God had intended for his people. But instead, God's name had become mudded. Rather than Israel living God's way and the nations being attracted to them, instead they had become attracted to the other nations and becoming like them. They were adopting their shameful practices, worshipping their idols, exploiting the poor, perverting the justice that God had intended under the law of Moses to take care of the foreigner within their midst and the, and the fatherless and the widow and so on. They become like this filthy garment, he says, so God couldn't wear them anymore. Instead of bringing him praise and glory, they would have brought him shame and disgrace, and he would have to cast them off. And so, as we've seen, God allowed the city of Jerusalem to be destroyed, to be burned to the ground as the Babylonians came and, and the, his people are cast off. They're, 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 they're taken into exile. However, God had made a promise to their forefather, Abraham, that he would bless his people and that they would be a blessing to the nations. And God is a promise-keeping God. And so after a period of exile, God promises in Jeremiah 33, so a little later on in Jeremiah, verse 8, that he would restore his people again. He says, I will cleanse them from all of the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion. And this city shall once again be for my renown and joy and praise and glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of the good that I do for them. And as we've seen, God stirred Cyrus, the pagan king of Persia, to fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy there. He allowed the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And in Nehemiah's time, that rebuilding work had been going on several decades. And so when he heard the news that Jerusalem and its people, rather than now bringing God praise and glory, they were still suffering shame and disgrace, he mourned, he wept, he prayed. And during that time, he felt God called him to be the one to go and do something about it. And so in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, as we saw last week, Nehemiah got permission from the king to go. And if you read on, you see how he got to Jerusalem. He, at night, he went around the walls and did a survey. He called all the people together, all the Jewish people and the priests and the nobles and the officials and everyone who was going to do the work because he couldn't do this alone. This was going to be a community effort. And this is what he says to them. And this is our text today, okay? Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, he says this. You see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let's build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And so the people all said, let's rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. And Lord, as we come right now to apply this to our own lives, 
to see what it has to do with us. I pray, Lord, you would strengthen our hands for the good work that you have called us to. And I pray, Lord, that it would be for your renown and for your praise and glory. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so how do we apply this to us then today? What's this going to do with us? Cities in ancient times had walls to protect them from their enemies. A city without walls was very vulnerable. That doesn't seem to be the problem for Nehemiah. Okay, that's not what he's concerned about. What's he concerned about? What does he say? He says, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Why? So we may no longer suffer derision. I think the main issue for Nehemiah was that God's name was at stake. Right? God has said, this city would be for my renown, for my praise, and for my glory. And here they were suffering derision. Instead of being a light attracting the other nations to her, she was now in disgrace still, and the nations were mocking her. All the surrounding peoples were saying, where is their God? And so Nehemiah says, come, let's rebuild the walls. You see, God's name is at stake. Now, today, God's name is not at stake in a physical city with gates and walls, but God's name is at stake in the lives of his people, the church. Right? We are now his city on the hill, as Jesus said. We are now the garment that God is wearing. But are we bringing him praise? Are other people giving glory to our Heavenly Father because of our good works? See, how attractive are we? Just take a look around at one another for a second. Now, before you say anything, okay, before you say anything, let's be clear. We have an enemy who loves to point out the stains in our garments, and he doesn't need any help doing that, all right? Um, the Bible calls him the accuser. He's the one who accuses us day and night, just like they accuse the, people of, the Jewish people there in Jerusalem. We'll look at that more in the coming weeks at the opposition that Nehemiah faced. But you see, the enemy loves to point out all your faults and failings. He loves to tell you you're not worthy. Uh, you know, why are you here? You see, if other people knew about you, if they knew what you'd done, you wouldn't dare sh show your face here. You know, he loves to heap the shame on you. And you know what? He's got something on every single one of us. And that's why we needed a savior. That's why we need a savior. Right? Just like it became apparent that Israel needed a savior. One greater than Nehemiah who could actually take away their sin. And so when, when God made that promise in Jeremiah 33 about cleansing them of their guilt and their sin, that promise was fulfilled through Jesus. Because that promise wasn't just for the people of Israel, but for all the peoples of the earth. All who would put their trust in Jesus because it's only his blood that can take away our sin, who can bring forgiveness for all our sins, all our failings, past, present, and future, right? So the enemy can say whatever he wants to about you and I, but if you are trusting in Jesus today, you have been clothed in his pure, spotless righteousness, and it means that God will never cast you off. He will never cast you off because of Jesus, not because of how well we're doing, but because of how well he's done on our behalf. Amen? However, however, we can bring dishonor and disgrace to his name. It's like we can drag his name through the mud 
because of how we live our lives. All right, we're like Israel. Instead of living God's way, we may choose to adopt the practices of the world around us. And that's why the Apostle Peter, uh, at the end of his life, he wrote to the church everywhere um, uh, these words, and he uses a language that would have been applied to Israel, now applied to the church, to his people today. And this is what he says in, second, in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. You see, we all are now the people of God. We are the light of the world. We are that city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Right, But the point is, our lives need to reflect that. And that's what Peter is saying here. He goes on to say, Dear friends, I urge you as sojourners and exiles in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, but live such good lives among the pagans, amongst the unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, it's not just the devil who accuses us. People around us who aren't following Jesus may accuse us as well, just like they did in Nehemiah's day. And of course, sometimes it might be justified, right? But we have to remember, if you are professing to be a Christian, right, then people are watching to see how you live, right? Your neighbors, uh, your work colleagues, your college friends, they are watching to see how you live. They're saying, oh, you know, he claims to know Jesus. She claims to be in relationship with Jesus. Well, we'll see what difference that makes to their life. You know, the world around us is, is saying, where is their God then? They're looking for the evidence in our lives. It matters how we live. Of course, sometimes we're going to be accused of things that are unjustified. The early Christians were accused of being cannibals because they talked about eating the body and the blood. Uh, and sadly today, we can also be accused of things that may not be justified. Sometimes it's because of the words and actions of people who profess to be Christians, but who clearly don't represent Christ. So for example, maybe people might accuse you of being judgmental. Oh yeah, you're all just judgmental, aren't you? or maybe of being racist or homophobic, sometimes because of what others have said or done. Right now, some of you would have heard PJ's story of being in an airport recently where he got into a conversation with this gay guy and was having a great uh, chat with him. And then in the conversation, the, the man said to PJ, so what do you do for a living? He says, I'm a pastor. Guy got up and walked off. End of conversation. Sadly, we're living in a culture where everything has become so politicized and where there is so much polarization and hostility, it's hard to even have a conversation. And the church has become this subject of derision and scorn in our culture, so we're faced with this huge obstacle if we're trying to relate to our culture, much like the broken down walls in Nehemiah's day. So what's the answer to that? 
What does it mean then for us all to rise up and to build? Well, as Peter says, 1 Peter 2, verse 11, again, let's read, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And, and again, he's quoting Jesus, isn't he? Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's our good works that will change people's thinking about the church and will attract them to God. It's what God always intended for his people. It means building a community here that shines into the darkness. And one of the main ways that we can do that is by becoming a community that cares for the poor and the needy for the immigrant and the marginalized, and who treats every human being with dignity and respect, with love and compassion. We, that's what we see in Isaiah 58, where God spells out what he expects from his people. Let's just read what he says. Isaiah 58. He, this is what he expects of his people. He says, Is it not to loose the chains of injustice and to set the oppressed free? to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And when you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. And flesh and blood there is referring to our fellow human being. If we will do that, then he says, then your light will rise in the darkness and you will be called repairer of broken walls. I love that. That's where these themes come together. And it must be important because it's repeated again in Isaiah 61, same language, right? That's what God wants our community here to be known for. Repairer of broken walls. Are you willing to own that today? To be a repairer of broken walls. The early church sought to be that kind of community. In Acts 4 it says there wasn't a needy one among them. They cared for the widows, the poor widows in their community. They even took up offerings to feed the hungry in other regions because of a famine that was taking place. And those good works continued long after the New Testament. We see that by AD 250, uh, the Christian community in Rome were uh, helping about 1,500 destitute people every day. And that right across the Mediterranean, churches were starting programs, food programs, and, and, and orphanages and hospitals to serve not just believers, but unbelievers as well. And what was the result of that? Listen to John Dixon from his book, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission. He says, within two and a half centuries, Christians have gone from being a small band of Palestinian Jews to the greatest social force in world history. In fact, the influence of Christian good works was so great in the 4th century that Emperor Julian became fearful that Christianity might take over the world forever by the stealth of good works. See, people were drawn to the beauty of their community. They were attracted by the way that they treated people with compassion. All people. All people. And it gained them a hearing in a hostile culture. No doubt gave them many opportunities to tell people about Jesus, the good news about Jesus. And multitudes of people 
from diverse backgrounds came to faith and glorified God. Listen, isn't that what the church in our country today needs to recover? That we need to lead by works, with works and not words? That is why I'm so grateful for the people in this church and the people that God has been joining to us. Because there's a growing community of people here who are responding to God's call, much like the people in Nehemiah's day when they said in Nehemiah 2 verse 18, let's rise up and build. And so it says they strengthen their hands for the good work. And what we're seeing here is an increasing number of good works that are being initiated by all kinds of people in the church here. It's becoming very much woven into our community. And so there's the ongoing work that I mentioned at Gosling Meadows. We've got a photograph of that at Gosling Meadows with the weekly uh, community dinners, uh, the, the Saturday Kids Club, the mums group uh, that meets there. And by the way, the bake sale we held here last week uh, that was hosted by some of the uh, women from Gosling Meadows uh, to benefit uh, the children in their community uh, raised over $700. So thank you for that. In fact, I got a text from one of the ladies, Emily, over there. She uh, said that the Gosling Ladies Group would like to thank everyone from New Frontiers Church for your generosity and continued support. With your purchases and donations, we'll be able to either send the kids of Gosling on a field trip next summer or host another outdoor movie night. But this means so much to us and the families here, so thank you again. So thank you all of you who bought cake. That wasn't too difficult, was it? Um, so uh, there's the works there at Gosling Meadows. Then this past week... Uh, next photo, Acts 2 Cafe was launched at our building. Uh, it's linked to our Acts 2 recovery program and is run by a number of uh, ladies in our church on Tuesdays and Wednesday lunchtimes, as well as a monthly Friday night live music session. First one just took place this past Friday. And it's a place where people from all walks of life can come and find community and support. And it's just great seeing this building being used by the wider community or to serve the wider community. We already have AA meeting here twice a week and a WIC meet here, you know, WIC, W-I-C, that's uh, the Women's and Infants and Children uh, Nutrition Program of the state of New Hampshire, and they have a drop-in uh, here weekly. Uh, so it's great to see that. We also have quite a number, or actually many people in our church now who have got trained uh, in the Genesis program um, to help people with addictions and um, with self-destructive behavior. And there's a number of people who here are helping others in that way. Uh, there's a group of them now who are uh, with Lydia's House of Hope and taking six single mums there in Summersworth through our recovery program, which now has a waiting list. So amazing things going on there, helping people in addiction. Um, of course, there are many other ways that people help to serve our communities, like cleaning up the places where we live, um, as well as serving in the soup kitchens and uh, all the ones that I haven't got photographs for, like helping you know, refugees and immigrants, visiting senior citizens, mentoring teenagers, providing counseling and care and so on. Um, and it's not just locally either. You know, I think of all our members here who have been involved in Nepal over the past 20 years uh, working with Mary and Susie. Next slide there. There we are. Mary and Susie in Nepal to bring freedom and dignity to dozens of families that have been trapped in slavery, uh, providing accommodation, education, work opportunities alongside building churches. 
Uh, or I think about the great response we had last Christmas. If you were here, remember for the month of December, we had a, a dress here on a mannequin uh, with wax dripping down it, representing the tears of, of the exploited sex workers who had been trafficked, and people were invited to come and pin dollars to it. And people pinned $12,000 to that dress, and it went to help um, uh, some sex workers who had been trafficked in Mumbai. And so we were able to send our own Carla as our ambassador, uh, his Carla, in a brothel in Mumbai. And then uh, there are the many thousands of dollars that people here have risen up and given uh, to help our church in Yalova, Turkey, to provide relief to the hundreds of Syrian uh, refugees uh, that they are working with there. And there is Emily with her Red Sox t-shirt and now living there and serving the Syrian uh, refugees. And I know there are many, many other good works that are going on that we don't even hear about, uh, but are just going on here all the time unnoticed. But you know what? God notices. God notices. And I'm pretty sure he wears the garment with pride and with delight. So I just want to say, let's be encouraged. right? Let's all continue to play our part as we arise and build and if you're new here today, and if you're looking for a church, uh, well, what can I say? Uh, the worship's great. <laughs> Preaching's okay. But we would love for you uh, to join us for our mission. All right, come and be a repairer of walls. Come and help us to shine so that many more people will come to glorify God. Amen.